In the past few months, we've witnessed a stunning pace in the development of AI systems. GPT-4, Alpaca 7 billion, and a number of other advancements all came in the span of a single week. As powerful and promising as these models are, they have well-known limitations and pose many potential harms. But the debate about what to do in the face of these consequences is a difficult one. Different organizations have widely varying views on what the best release strategy is for a language model, while race conditions and geopolitics provide another venue for argument. We need people who can think clearly about all of these questions, who can bridge deep policy expertise and deep technical insight. Today's guest is one of those people. Irene Suleiman is the policy director at Hugging Face, where she conducts social impact research and develops public policy. She has held similar roles at OpenAI and the Zillow Group. In this conversation, we discuss her research and ideas regarding release strategies, toxicity in language models, social impact, and broader policy initiatives. This is the Gradient Podcast. I am your host, Daniel Bashir. If you aren't already subscribed to The Gradient, go ahead and follow us wherever you're listening to this podcast. You can also follow us on Substack, where you'll get notifications whenever we release a new podcast episode, article, or newsletter. But now, without further ado, Irene Suleiman. Irene, you've been doing a lot of really exciting work in the AI policy space. I admire a lot of the different things you've been working on, and I always start these with the origin story question. So how did you start getting into AI policy, the intersection of the two in the first place? Well, incredible to be on here. I find many interesting careers are thoroughly nonlinear. I started in policy purely. I thought that I was going to go into government and focus on human rights policy. I started reading 12 hours a day of human rights violations working for the US government. I deeply respect the people who do this full time. That was not for me. I got really sad. So uh, it's not the, the obvious path for people struggling with their mental health. I turned to tech. I went to grad school. I learned how to code. I got more steeped in more of the social impacts of AI, and I wanted to leverage what I felt was already a pretty foundational background in policy, and I keep that thread throughout. But I feel like a lot of the power in, I hope my career is is based in my research and understanding what is technically feasible. And there is a whole ecosystem around how to make models work better for the many groups of people who are affected by them, which will be the theme of my career, and I expect this, this chat. Coming from your background, really starting with that foundation of policy, I have kind of a two-part question for you, because I think that you bring this expertise sort of from both sides, the policy and technical areas. What do you feel like when it comes to AI policy, sort of understanding it, having debates over it, where do you, what do you feel like tech people don't understand well enough about policy? And what do you feel that policy people don't understand well enough about the technology side of things? 
There is this incredible pressure for especially policy people to scale up technically. And I really think that that needs to go both ways. Absolutely, people on the technical side need to be more conscious of the ethics and safety and social impacts of what they're building. There's more efforts, especially in academia, to better integrate these kinds of ethical considerations into computer science departments historically. And this depends on on the academic setting. Ethics and, and policy and considerations are often a separate class or something that often people will, will zone out, not speaking for everybody, uh, but it's pretty common for this to be not as seamlessly integrated into the actual coursework. So uh, this is also under the assumption that people are learning about AI and preparing for their career in a formal academic setting. But even if you're doing a boot camp, if you're learning about, especially what I work on, which are these generative systems, there's this unfortunate siloing of policy and social impact. And there's very hard to have one word that encompasses all these different considerations, societal considerations around AI versus the actual building uh, and more of the, the computer science capability aspect. Uh, I, I find it very hard as well to determine what, what phrasing to use because policy work is deeply technical. The social impact work is very heavily computer science oriented as well. But there is also a hierarchy in what is resource. Capabilities tend to be a lot more resourced than safety or societal impact work. That makes a lot of sense to me. I think that, especially at the school I went to, there is a lot of discussion over the pedagogical nature of a curriculum that is introducing the student to computer science, to whatever discipline it is in STEM. And I feel like I kind of had a, an interesting experience with this one just because I went to this school, Harvey College, that was very STEM focused, but in its mission statement, at the very least, kind of pledges to develop students in that aspect of quote unquote, understanding the impact of their work on society. And I think I was lucky enough that enough people actually cared about that becoming a reality, that there were lots of discussions about where the school fell short. But it, it does seem like we have lots of high-level principles about how you engage students, how you engage tech workers in these things. And it seems like People seem to agree in lots of ways on like the this is important question and the here are some basic ideas about how we begin approaching it. But it still does feel like there is a lot of room left to run here. And I'm curious in your own experience, how you see that. Wow. So, ah, so much to say, so much to say. <laughs> so so much is nuanced. And this is why I love working in startups. I love that I have flexibility in my role and I get to spend about two thirds of my time doing research and one third doing policy. Because like I said earlier, the whole of societal impact is really an ecosystem responsibility. Policymakers must understand these systems to better regulate them and regulation is urgent. But also from the from the research side, we need to be building better tools and start to consider societal impact and ethics and safety from project conception, not just as an afterthought when this when the system's already built. So so I find a lot of my strength is in my research. I can better understand what is technically feasible and implementable. A, a, a common 
the intent is good, but a, a common request that I get from policymakers, for example, is can we unbias the system? I think people have calibrated enough to the point where there's more understanding that no system can be fully unbiased, even though we tend to use these terms like debiasing. But these kinds of these kinds of approaches need to be based in what we are able to do with a given system. The unbiased point is kind of interesting and one I want to return to later, but I think this might be a good place to start diving into some of your research. So when you were at OpenAI, you authored this paper on release strategies and the social impacts of language models. And it's very funny that we are recording this on Pi Day 2023 when the GPT-4 release happened. This paper, of course, was concerning the, concerning the GPT-2 strategy. I'd love for you to maybe introduce some of the context for this paper, how you were thinking about, we have this new system, we need to think about what the proper way to go about releasing it to the world, if at all, is. Happy Pi Day. This work stream was really, it's an example that I give of an incredible group effort. Yes, my name is first on that paper, and I put a lot of work into it. But uh, it was an incredible way to work with people who developed GPT-2 with external partners and the power of multidisciplinary work, especially among in a time, it's crazy to think this was, what, four years ago, uh, at a time where so many of the questions are still unanswered on how there is no right way to release a language model, as my latest research explains. Uh, clearly, this is a this is a thread that seems to be evergreen. Uh, it's a it's a constantly relevant research topic. GPT two, I've recently seen has been an inflection point in how people release their models. I stand by the staged release process. It was a time where so many models like GPT-2 didn't exist. And we've really seen an explosion in the past few years. But we, I, I think in 2019, we were just much more intentional about release because there were so few actors in the space. Uh, they didn't have this level of attention. And they didn't have, as a function, they didn't have as many malicious actors. So there is a lot more pressure in a lot of areas. There's a lot more ideological differences in how people want to engage with and release models. But I'm very grateful that I got to do that interdisciplinary, multi and interdisciplinary work. And for, frankly, yeet is just not a sustainable release strategy. So I'm glad to see this paper and broadly AI release become more, more of a conversation these days. Yeah, it does seem like there was some pushback on the initial more closed approach or stage release approach to GPT-2. And there are a lot of issues at play here. You did mention the fact that back then there were few actors, especially few, fewer malicious actors. And around the time you released this paper, one of our gradient editors, Hu Zhang, published a piece on the platform entreating OpenAI to release GPT-2. And he argued that when dealing with what he termed, I think, deceptive technologies, which operate primarily in the non-physical realm, we should make knowledge of their power, of their abilities as public as possible. And I think that a lot of people advocate for that openness for the pursuit of academic study of these things, for better understanding 
limitations, dangers. I know that Eleuther AI was very much a proponent of this point. And I'm curious how you respond to those arguments and pushback when you think about release strategies. Something that I've learned being more part of the open source community is how, well, and also being an internet gremlin, is how people on the internet are just going to do weird things and you can't account for them a lot of the time. Uh, The really egregious example and content warning here is child sexual abuse material, CSAM. That's not something that anybody I know ever considers doing with the language model. did not come up to anybody's minds when we were red teaming, trying to trying to probe this model to have malicious outputs. And I think for a lot of people, uh, have giving them the benefit of the doubt, these really egregious outputs aren't top of mind when you're considering the risks until it's out there. Uh, GPT-2 wasn't as powerful, for example, as as well, Palm as GPT-4 for sure. But I think it's important to have these conversations early. And I can I, I can appreciate that people were pushing back. People should push back. It, it should be a broader conversation. But I'm so glad we started the conversation around disinformation and harms to marginalized groups in 2019 so that we have something now to, to look back on. Another example is the detection model that our team released in 2019 was basically the only tool that people were using when ChatGPT reached virality. This is the importance of foundational work. I'm 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 surprised at the level of accuracy that detection model had. I'm grateful that Hugging Face immediately uh, in 2019 also made this a really accessible interface. That's a key part of release here that I, I also want to talk about, so that anybody, regardless of their their background in computer science, can engage with this interface to determine the likelihood of a of an output being AI generated. That detection part is really important, I guess. And as you said, for people with a non-CS background, I guess some of the kind of obvious cases that come up here are like teachers who want to know if their students are just using ChatGPT to submit essays. In coming up with some of the foundations of release strategies and developing these models from the beginning, many people do talk about this idea of a multidisciplinary approach, but I think many of us probably don't have direct experience with that or what it looks like. I'd love for you to maybe give us just some details on what that has looked like for you, perhaps pointing to your experience with this paper around GPT-2 and maybe any of your experience since then. Yeah, so so this goes back to our earlier conversation around uh, sharing skills. And I have a deep sociological humanities policy background, and I'm not the strongest coder, but can fumble my way through. And uh, I'd hope that that's the same for, and I've seen this be the same for people who are incredibly technically skilled and can really hold their own in these conversations about systemic harms. Uh, a common question that is apparent in all of my research, and I think the the field broadly needs to be asking more, is for whom are we building these models? And for releasing, it's accessible to whom? That's what I find the power in this easy detection model interface, the GPT-2 output detector on Hugging Face. Uh, And I think part of what makes ChatGPT so popular, what I love about Hugging Face's hub, is making these really easy input-output boxes 
for anybody to engage. That means in interdisciplinary work, you don't necessarily need to be the strongest coder. But actually, I have an incredible friend uh, who would build some of these interfaces for me when I was earlier in my career and testing biases and didn't feel as strong, for example, querying the model via API through my terminal. Uh, So it's really like allyship. It's meeting people's needs in the level of skill that they have in a certain area and recognizing when you should give more power to somebody because of their particular background and, and strength. There, there's a lot of depth to that, that I feel like, as you pointed out, things like the interfaces that are offered by Hugging Face kind of bring to the fore. When it comes to the end user, you're thinking about the person who is using this for an app, somebody who's a developer, but then you're also thinking about the person with a very strong humanistic background who wants to use this for a particular type of study. And you have to think about not just the model, because you plop a you plop a terminal in front of somebody and you're going to get a very different range of responses to that. And I'm sure that many people will see that and just feel very intimidated. So that aspect of, of making this like a welcoming experience and enabling somebody to very quickly engage and do what it is they need to do with the thing you're building seems really important. Absolutely. And this is, I understand the need to have some level of quantification for social impacts, for example, scores in bias evals, but that's inherently flawed to try to put a quantification to something so sociologically complex. Uh, I can see why you need to do that, for example, for mitigation, but sometimes just straight up vibes from using an interface can give you a lot of insight into a model. And I don't think we should ever discount that. I think one kind of connection that I have to make when it comes to this paper is the more recent things we've seen out of OpenAI. So we mentioned GPT-4 earlier, and I want to get to that. But first, there was also another pretty recent blog post from OpenAI. So Altman published this preparing for AGI post that... I think kind of coming off the heels of ChatGPT and probably anticipating GPT-4 outlined some of OpenAI's commitments, but then also I think reaffirmed this idea of a staged release strategy. And I'm curious how you respond to and kind of think about the way that OpenAI is kind of currently going about release strategies. I have no idea what's going on over there. There's many different ways to approach release. Uh, I, I think OpenAI has frankly been a lot more open than most actors in the space. Meta has really been coming through on the open source. Mostly, uh, if, if it's not open source, we're missing some training data information. But there's so many other models that I have no idea what's happening behind there. For example, Alphabet both Google and DeepMind Labs, we, we just take them at face value. And I find it interesting how little these labs are questioned for their transparency. I think there is a difference in the naming of the institution. <laughs> That's fair. But uh, there's, there's a lot of attention being given to OpenAI systems. So of course, there's an, a need to be more cautious about how people engage with them. That seems right. I guess there's 
an expectation set up here. Like, I don't know how much... I'm sure they've made commitments in the past, companies like Google, to openness and, and reproducibility. And I think that people have probably come to terms with not expecting that from Google over time. I know that there was, I believe, a pretty public criticism in nature about a some ML plus biology paper that came out of Google quite a few years ago. And they were like, this is basically just a product pitch. Like you're not telling us anything about how you you did this work. And I suppose people just come to expect that from Google. But as you're saying, I think OpenAI with that idea of openness in the foundation, in the name, people probably have a pretty different expectation. And I think when GPT-4 was released today, it feels like people were pretty annoyed by the lack of any technical detail in the report, which is fair. But as you're saying, I guess there's certainly, we, we seem to be putting attention and pressure only in a few places. Yeah, yeah. And something that I've been really grappling with at Hugging Face and with policymakers is who constitutes a researcher? And do you have to have a formal affiliation to be considered a researcher. We've been talking about gating at Hugging Phase, and I've been talking with policymakers about funding more safety research, but then you have to taxonomize what constitutes safety and whom you are resourcing. And it can be, I I believe that anybody really can be anybody, regardless of their formal education, of any affiliation, but then how do you vet that? And how do you ensure that they're not a troll or a malicious actor? So some people, especially with that level of attention, understandably are much more cautious. But something that's really resonated with researchers and policymakers that I've been saying, no one organization has all of the viewpoints and all of the capability to fully red team any given system and to to look at the model from the many different perspectives that it'll end up affecting. Especially I've been speaking more with international, multinational collectives and international organizations around this cultural context. That's really where my heart is and my my research on POMS process for adapting language models to society. I think the the release and being really intentional about whom you're releasing to, what accessibility looks like for people who know their culture better, but may not necessarily have that computer science background is so important when these language models, any sort of generative model, is really reflecting our society and reinforcing or amplifying social norms is social engineering, especially when you look at the, the representation of what's in those social norms. Let's use that as a segue into the Palms paper. I'd love for you to perhaps introduce what you were doing in this paper. Part of the title is Values Targeted Datasets. So perhaps some of the key concepts there and um, what you hope to achieve with it. This is my research baby. And it's been incredible to see this picked up by every major lab working on language models right now. I was... I was just getting vibes from language models on the cultural biases. This is back to the importance of of qualitative evaluations on these kinds of harmful biases, uh, skews towards how a language model would output sentiment on a given, what I would call a sensitive topic, such as sexual content or beauty. 
So I worked with my dear, dear friend and co-author on this paper, Christy Dennison, on creating a list, a framework for sensitive topics. We went through tens of thousands of queries that unfortunately cannot be shared because they're proprietary. Uh, tens of thousands of customer queries to create the sensitive topics framework on everything from these normative concepts like beauty to terrorism to these kinds of topics that we feel are somewhat representative of a given culture. Uh, you can see that in Appendix A of, of the paper. And then we thought, what would our ideal model look like? Not necessarily for Irene and Christy, but for at least the world in which we're interacting with. And we want to, you know, if it, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. We wanted to rely on U.S. law and U.N. human rights frameworks, try to integrate these position statements as much as we can into a values-targeted data set. So we crafted 80 prompts and uh, contracted a writer who was just much better at writing than both of us. Uh, she helped us come out with 100 to 400 words each responses that were centered around our behavior description. And then we just fine-tuned the model. This was relatively rudimentary compared to, for example, reinforcement learning with human feedback. But even with such a tiny data set and with just simple fine-tuning, we saw really significant changes in behavior of the overall model along the axes in which we were evaluating. We gave the more standard technical evaluations in this paper, but just from vibes, actually, it was just months of just vibing with this model. And we were so certain that we could see, we could definitely see a change in the behavior, but major kudos to Alex Radford and um, Alec, excuse me, major kudos to Alec Radford and many other people like Josh Achiam on guiding us on to how do you, how do you prove that the model has changed? It's interesting how this technique so you you drew a line in your response between it and rlhf and it does feel like this kind of framework for we have a data set and as you said you had this set of 80 prompts we have a certain behavior we'd like to see from the model and that perhaps aligns with certain values you're rewarding it for giving responses that perhaps align with a particular set of values so that seems to map very cleanly into that kind of reinforcement learning framework. Yeah, yeah, it does. I've heard some people, unfortunately, I can't share who are also recreating this with reinforcement learning. But I think where this differs is looking more at what I call cultural value alignment versus what has been considered more the general traditional safety alignment, uh, more towards instruction following. Often, these kinds of, I mean, these these cultural values are just so fuzzy and really difficult to evaluate. But as these language models start to be deployed increasingly around the world, these questions are urgent. I think that speaks to one of the issues that was brought up by Stanford initially when they brought up on the opportunities and risks of foundation models. They spoke to this homogenization where you, as models get larger and larger, and if that becomes sort of the state of the art, and the MO for doing ML becomes, instead of training a model myself from scratch, I just take one of these foundation models. Perhaps I fine tune it, or I sort of do something with it out of the box. Whatever cultural norms, whatever biases exist in that foundation model will end up in my downstream application. And so 
when it comes to the the flavors of cultural context that might be necessary, it seems very much the case that you can't have just a single canonical model that is going to work for everybody's cultural context as a way of doing things. A few years ago, I thought, hey, maybe we'll create a model for every single person and application possible. And then I realized what carbon emissions were. Uh, So it's not not the best thing to do. We have to figure out how to do that efficiently. I mean, even fine tuning is relatively low cost. We wanted to make this process as easy for people to technically do, but also low barrier for people who just can write a few hundred words that represent what they believe in. I have a lot of, I have so many thoughts, but this is, this is clearly where my heart really is. And I, if you have more, please go on. I generally say that technology can harm and benefit people. And the people who are harmed are often not the same group as the people who are benefited. So I really want this work to especially empower the people who don't feel reflected in what language models and generative models broadly are outputting. I have seen a trend for, uh, people who I did not necessarily create this research for to to question um, wokeness. I don't feel that that is a productive conversation, frankly. I I just believe that people deserve human rights and respect, which I don't think should be controversial. That, That seems like a sensible way of thinking about this to me. One connection I'm kind of curious about. So We talked about RLHF kind of following from these methods. And of course, you mentioned the important difference. That's more about instruction following. And here you're more concerned with cultural context. There was a very interesting work from Anthropic that I think also touches on the debiasing point you brought up earlier, where they found that at a certain scale, you could basically just ask a language model to act or give outputs that were less biased. And it kind of worked. I'm curious how you think about a result like that. I think they had a pretty clean breakdown, but I'm, I'm sort of curious your take. Yeah, yeah. So I've dug into that paper a little bit, and I think it's really interesting work. Technically, it shows a lot of promise. Some of my criticism is around the danger of over, oversimplifying really complex work. And I think a lot of that is more in the communication than the work itself. I think Deep is absolutely fantastic. Uh, I'm really concerned broadly in the field about about promoting the narrative of debiasing or really relying on AI feedback when humans are so key. Yeah, humans are flawed and they're not really reliable, but this is for whom we're building systems. And especially we already know that systems like language models have deep biases. So, so relying on a system itself to correct for stereotypes can can be one parameter of safety and, and can be part of what I would consider a cocktail of making a system safer. Safer. I just would really urge against oversimplifying this type of work. I see what you're saying. So when you sell this type of technique as debiasing, I mean, really, as the paper, as you can kind of gather from the paper, it's not actually going into the guts of the model and extracting the actual bias out of what's there, right? It's more like, okay, I might have these problematic representations that manifest themselves in the language. That is my output. And here I'm more or less papering over that. In some sense, you could 
see that as I'm just saying what's socially acceptable, even if internally I don't actually feel that way. Which is super fine. I mean, POMS also doesn't go into the guts. Oh, another point that I was meaning to say, and then my brain got lost, was around how data work historically has been unsexy. And to create these large models, you need an absurd amount of data that it is impossible to properly sort through and understand and analyze. So to to have some relatively low cost means like POMS, like the, the paper from Anthropic and Moral Self-Correction, I think are super helpful tools. However, uh, I would also say that problems like biases are systemic. They're not moral. And it's so important to continue this work. I don't want to discourage it uh, across any lab. It's it's going to be, this is why it comes back to the ecosystem. It's not going to be any labs, any one lab's responsibility to mitigate biases, although the tools and, and technical methods are absolutely necessary. We have to recognize this is not a, a language model choice. This is a really hard societal question when you're training on hundreds and thousands of years of social inequity. Of course, you're going to get outputs that reflect that. Uh, but but we we can't rely on technical solutions for a incredibly human systemic problem. I, I definitely think that's right. It's like if you go and tell a team that is training a model like this, that you need to make this completely unbiased, you are sort of asking them to just totally correct society in a sense. And that really is very much one, an undue burden, but two, as you said, far beyond the scope of the capabilities of pure technical things. Um, I do want to come back to sort of expanding beyond techno solutionism a little bit later. But before we get there, at the end of this paper, you presented a set of questions for future consideration. And I want to turn one of those back on you, actually. So you asked why language models seem to get more toxic as they get larger. I'm curious if you could relate some observations and any theories you have on that front. This is so interesting. And I found many other researchers have, have found this among different evaluations as well. And we all seem kind of confused about it. I don't know. I mean, a, a part of this is like, as we've been saying, toxicity metrics are so flawed. Perspective API has a lot of problems. I'm still going to use it, but it has a lot of false positives. Uh, it's going to raise these kinds of protected class categories, such as like queer or gay might raise toxicity. And this can often lead to erasure of marginalized communities. There's a lot of problems in how we measure this to to simplify that. But I don't know. I'm so I really want people to look more into this. Uh, and this I think this also, this feeds into the narrative that larger models are more dangerous, and we should be more cautious about how we release them. I think a lot of this is also a data question, because a particular model that caused me a lot of grief it, over the summer of 2022 was trained on a horrible data set and was a relatively small model. Uh, Sometimes it's really a question of the content that you're looking at and we need to make data work sexier. But I like genuinely, Daniel, I think this is one of the most interesting questions that people can work on. Well, if you're listening to this and have any ideas, I think that um, 
I and I'm sure Irene would be very excited to see you Tell work me. on this problem. Yeah. Um, let's let's talk a little bit about a, another paper that you worked on on generative AI release. And I guess this is kind of coming back to the question we started to broach earlier. Could you tell me a little bit about this paper and sort of how your thinking about AI release had evolved or changed, if at all, since the previous one? Well, I have seen a lot happen in the past years, especially since GPT-2. I think until you take a step back, it's hard to appreciate how influential that stage release was in the space. It's interesting to see as well a pretty common theme of closeness across modalities, and we tend to fixate on what has become more popular, like image and text. Those are also just more accessible versus this audio, video. Uh, there's there's so many different kinds of especially intellectual property considerations and legal precedent and what is releasable there. A lot of my inspiration here was I coming to Hugging Face and more of the open source world, I don't have a background in open source software. Uh, I definitely believe in ethical openness because of this question of how do we make models work better for many different groups? They have to have access and continually question accessible for whom. Uh, I love that the open source world has been more prevalent, especially in the developing world than I've seen in many other ML communities. But I don't think everything should be open source all the time, always. Some people very much do deeply believe this. And I wanted to give a better framework, share my lessons over the past few years with people who have also this intuition, but maybe don't have that closeness or capacity to step back and really analyze why are people releasing the way that they do. Uh, a really important lesson as well is, and I keep on emphasizing this, people will have a different approach to what is right for them. And a lot of this will be time dependent. A lot of this will be ideological and depend on modality. But I, I don't give a value judgment. And I don't actually put myself on that spectrum of the gradient that I made a graphic of on open versus closed. I believe strongly in the broader perspectives component. This is, uh, if you're looking at the graphic in my paper, I create a gradient fully closed and fully open on either end. And the trade-offs, one of them is just having broader perspectives for community research to better analyze a model. Yeah, I was just gonna ask you a little bit about the gradient that you came up with. I'd, I think maybe what I'd love to hear a little bit about is you're mentioning that you feel like you don't kind of fit in one place on the gradient, as it were. Could you elaborate a little bit on what you mean by that? Yeah. So the gradient is doesn't capture all the different nuances and potentials for model release. We do our best with a framework. But I, I, I guess because I've worked with so many different types of models and functionalities and modalities, I won't stick I, I don't see myself really advocating for a specific position for every single modality and every single model. I think that they have so many different considerations, especially for their capabilities. Some people I've seen in, in the AI space really feel that every model, regardless of the proven harm of their output, how egregious their output is, should be open source at all costs. And I think that, I mean, that's just definitely not how I think. It's it's really ideological. 
That's fair. One interesting wrinkle, I think, for this debate is about the pragmatics of things that tend towards the fully closed side. So I think we've seen some ex- some successful attempts at keeping models fully closed, but we have seen some also unsuccessful attempts at keeping models towards the fully closed side of that. So for example, um, Meta, which, as you mentioned, is already on the more open side of the spectrum, they released Llama recently, these pretty small models that were very competitive with much larger ones, which had been trained on many more tokens. And they wanted to offer a sort of gated release. You have to actually submit to get access to the weights for Llama, right? And then now those are available via Torrent. So it seems like for wherever you are on this gradient, there are people out there who, as you said, believe that everything always should be open source. And not only do they believe that, but there are many people who are willing to act on that. And they it seems like they are often successful, if not in necessarily getting the original model out there, getting a pretty good reproduction of it. And I'm curious how you think about a place like OpenAI, like Hugging Face, having to deal with that reality in thinking about its own strategy in, in release. So a common thread that you'll see with Llama and Stable Diffusion is, at least I, not having worked with in either organization, haven't seen a planned approach to how to mitigate this kind of leakage. So Stable Diffusion was also planned as a stage release and those model weights got leaked. And as you, as you just talked about Llama, but we generally want to give people the benefit of the doubt and hope that they'll respect these release decisions. Stella Biderman had some good comments on this on Twitter about how this is just disincentivizing a lot of actors from releasing their systems. It's an act of bad faith. Uh, I find it a bummer, Daniel. <laughs> But it, I mean, it, you have to, in the interest of good research from the developer and releaser perspective, I think it's really important to think more deeply and invest more into the safety practices on how we release models. Uh, it's really hard to vet every single researcher and put some more teeth on what happens if your weights get leaked, but maybe that's something that we should invest more into. One aspect of this, I think that some early discourse focused on was the setting of norms. And I think this was not only about release, but also about the usage of these models, which feels like a very important thing to do. But many people will come in and criticize this and say, you know, norm setting is something that doesn't really have teeth. And I think that's often a criticism of some of what comes out of the policy space, which I think is understandable and true, but then also I feel like there are some realities to the difficulty of doing policy that people don't think about as much when making that particular criticism. I am curious how you think about the importance of norm setting, but then also how you think about its potential success, both when it comes to release strategies for models, but also their use. Yes. So So for me, it's a question of one, who sets those norms? And two, how do we continue to update them in this rapidly evolving landscape? A few years ago, 
uh, around 2019 era, Partnership on AI had established the Publication Norms Project, which we were all really hopeful for. I, I think they created a great platform to balance this concentration of power where we see people developing the models who have access to the models, have a lot of power, of course, in how their model is released. And I would like to think at least my nostalgic reflection on the time is that people in the ecosystem were really broadly open to each other's input because we weren't in the level of, of race dynamic that I feel we are today. It's really hard. Unfortunately, that that effort sort of fizzled and I, I'm hearing and hoping that we'll revitalize some of it. It's really hard to find a good neutral third party to host these kinds of conversations. Uh, it's really hard to incentivize the actors who have the power to engage with especially criticism. Uh, I, I like to think that it's usually constructive, but uh, what what is the incentive to engage with norms? But I would rather have norms that are not enforceable versus no norms at all. I think an example here is documentation and social impact category, uh, social impact sections of papers. These are not enforced. There's, there's no body that tells you to do this outside of NERP's publication suggesting a broader impact section, which I'm not sure is even mandated anymore. Uh, but generally, a lot of model release papers will have a social impact section and will have a system data sheet, system card, data sheet, model card. That's an incredible norm that, to the credit especially of ethics researchers, has become normalized. That's what happens with norms throughout the community. That doesn't mean that we should stop having these conversations. We've seen the proof already. And I think especially for things like social impact sections, an unenforced norm feels in some ways, when it succeeds, far more powerful than something that is enforced, right? Because I think that when it comes to, I am trying to get in my paper for the New York's deadline tomorrow, and oh crap, I forgot to put in a social impact section. That's more just filling something in because you have to, kind of going back to our earlier conversation about thinking about the social impacts of tech and pedagogy as just something that's really a box checked off as opposed to something that people engage with in a more meaningful way. Yeah, I, I think this also goes back to our conversation on multidisciplinary research. Not everybody who is working on capabilities is going to have the expertise needed for a robust social impact section. And that is very okay. Uh, people have their different expertise and contributions. What's important here is not to diminish the expertise of people who work on more of the ethics and safety side. I really want to talk about race dynamics, because ah. that is something you mentioned earlier and throws, I think, an even larger wrinkle into some of the conversations we're having. And, you know, this operates not just on the inside the United States, we have all these actors competing level, but very soon after GPT-3 came out, we saw China come out with its own very large foundation model. We saw Korea, we saw Israel, many different countries coming. And I know a few years ago, Ian Hogarth labeled this AI nationalism phenomenon that he was seeing, which I think really plays into some of the ways that companies today, and especially the governments, are thinking about their competitiveness in AI. And undoubtedly, that is going to influence some of these questions about the care that is taken when thinking about the social impacts of models, but then also the release strategies. And I am curious how those effects have manifested in your experience and how you think about them. 
I'm just stressed all the time is most of it. Mm -hmm. So I see race dynamics in two dimensions. I occasionally dip my toe into the national security space, and there is a heavy theme of race racing among these global powers, especially the U.S. and China. You'll hear this theme in the U.S. national security space, but even with allyship, for example, with the U.K. And then you have more of the industry racing. So where Google is investing, the incredible pace of capability that we've seen come out of OpenAI and Anthropic and, and all the different labs, even though the people working at them are super chill with each other. Uh, it's it's actually really heartwarming to uh-huh. experience. But this is something that the research world has been warning about for years, this adversarial competition and race to the bottom. Often when you're racing for capability, you're not being as intentional or investing as much into safety and ethics. Uh, I, I say those both two words as well, because there's there tends to be tension between the safety and ethics communities, but I don't think we have enough time in this conversation to delve into that. I think both work is incredibly important, uh, but both communities are being under-resourced at this time where capabilities are first and foremost from an industry and national perspective, especially when you have the behemoth that is the military industrial complex pushing you to output capabilities that reflect American values when we don't really know what that looks like. And I've been trying to to put more effort into research is slow. Ethics and safety research is slow. And I mean, here we are four years later. I think the GPT-2 research is even more impactful four years later than it was maybe in 2019. You won't always be able to foresee the importance of research. I'm really, I'm nervous, Daniel. Stress seems like... Um the appropriate response to a lot of this. Yeah. I, I I really sympathize with a lot of this. And I I think about it frequently because I I have these frustrations at times. And I think that a lot of people feel these frustrations about why do we feel like we're having the same conversations over and over and over again about ethics and policy. And just, you know, compared to four years ago, why do I mean conversations have definitely advanced in some ways, but I think the broad strokes of them do feel the same in lots of ways. But as you said, it's really an artifact of where the attention is going. Everybody is just getting excited at look at how cool GPT four is and the fact that it can take a picture of a website I want to build and output kind of working code to create that. And I think especially this past year, it feels we are just so excited about the capabilities that it does leave certain kinds of discourse just really not considered as much. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think the people who develop the systems will be the first to to tell you not to overhype or overpromise on them as well. Uh, I see a lot of the overpromises coming from people who don't necessarily have that closeness to the system. And I don't think it's a bad thing to continue to have the same conversations, although it is exhausting and it can drive you a little insane. But you're updating with incoming data. We had the conversation around disinformation generation in 2019. And now that we now four years later, we can say, not as many people are generating disinformation as we thought they would because of the comparative cost of human labor 
creating disinformation. But we had a thread a few years ago thinking about academic integrity. And that's actually picked up more than at least I expected in 2019. Let's dive deeper into that conversation now that we're seeing what people in the academic world, especially in foundation formative, formative schooling, uh, such as high schools, are thinking about academic integrity. And then we can go back and iterate upon our earlier conversations. That does really speak to the need for this early red teaming, but then also doing threat modeling in as many different ways as you can. Because as we've seen manifest over the past couple of years, and as you just pointed out in those few examples, we are going to see many possible threats. And just naturally, some of them are going to manifest or become important in ways we didn't expect. Of course, we're going to miss some threats and some others are just going to turn out not to be very important at all. But having laid some of the foundations a little bit beforehand, even if it's just calling this out saying, hey, we should really start thinking about this a few years earlier. Here are some ideas. When those threats do start to manifest, at least you've done something and somebody has been thinking about it for a little while. Absolutely. I mean, I just keep on thinking about the level of traffic. We had to change engines for the GPT output detection model on Hugging Face because it was so popular and we already prepared for that four years ago. So this is a concrete example of the power of having the same conversation. I want to talk about some broader ideas on just doing AI policy and what that looks like. And I kind of want to come at this from two perspectives. One, I think more about your roles in the corporate world. So you have spent time at OpenAI, at Zillow, at Hugging Face, these pretty different organizations that have pretty different goals. And so I'd love to hear from you about A, your experience doing policy at these different places, but then also how that has looked different and how that kind of corresponds to the goals of each organization. So at all three, and they are quite, especially Zillow, uh, tends to be an outlier there. All three, I really pushed to ensure that I was doing technical research. The vast majority of my role was technical research. I'm, I'm really grateful for my experience at Zillow. It was the hardest job I ever had. And this is something that real estate I've learned is not my passion. Glad I learned that now. Uh, but it is so influential in people's lives and the level of pressure of something that was so imminently affecting families and, and people across North America made the the problem so much more tangible to me. I, I think this you're now seeing this with generative models, but that was not the case a few months ago. Uh, so the pressure is on across the board. But for for Zillow, I spent a lot of my time working with the ethics group on creating evaluations for the different AI systems, especially the predictive housing valuation model, the Zestimate. It really made me better appreciate the complexity of how to work within one existing law because real estate law is not updated for today. And you're looking at incredibly outdated fair housing laws that do not fit to AI models. which it would be really helpful to get some more guidance on policymakers. It's not necessarily highest priority. I would like to shift that prioritization. But you're you're thinking, hey, if I try to make this model 
more fair, especially for different races, I'm manipulating the market. And that is a bad thing to do. But if I just leave it be, decades of just racist housing transactions are going to be reflected in this model. That's also bad. And you're just, you're this at this catch 22. I hope I'm using that phrase right. Uh, this is more of a concrete application example of how I've been thinking about really fuzzy concepts of societal impact. It gave me more insight into a specific sector. And I try to bring that to the policy work. It's really hard to evaluate a base generative model without understanding its its context. And I think that's how we're going to have to approach these, these models from a policy perspective, giving more specificity to them. That's a really key insight. As you said, it's hard to just say, here's GPT-4, tell me, you know, what considerations we should take into account for it. You really, as you said, do have to go into the nitty gritty of how different people are using it. And I think that also speaks to the importance of distributing the load of some of those efforts onto, I am an organization that is using this model. Well, I do have to bear at least a little bit of that burden because I'm the person or I'm the organization that most deeply knows what my use case looks like and the ins and outs of that. And perhaps histories of bias that are related to the particular sector or market that I am working in. And that's just deep expertise that the end user is going to have that the person who created the model is not going to know very much about. Absolutely. And this is a really important part of release is being able to engage different experts. Of course, it's important to understand real estate when you're working on a predictive housing valuation model. But for something like a large language model, if you're trying to use it for something that I would consider lower risk, like poetry generation, it'd be great to engage more with the artist community, better understand economic and labor impact and how we can encourage this use as a tool, as opposed to something that can automate out people's jobs. And then look at if a higher risk application, for example, medical advice, which I don't think is a safe use of like of large language models uh, and engage more with medical experts because they can better understand what is what is just an inappropriate ap- output, whether we should full out ban these systems completely, uh, we should absolutely be engaging more with sectoral experts. At this point, most of your work and most of what we've spoken about today kind of lives in the context of release strategies and how organizations, especially AI-focused organizations, are thinking about the deployment of these models. But in Parallel with that, as we kind of mentioned earlier, when it came to international race dynamics and AI nationalism, there has been more and more attention paid to these releases at the national level. And as an artifact of that, we have seen a number of different policy proposals, the U.S.'s recent um, AI Bill of Rights, the EU's AI Act. China has been doing some very interesting experiments and in algorithmic legislation. And as somebody who's been more deeply engaged with questions about crafting policy than most, I'm curious how you respond to some of these recent attempts at legislation. What do you think is working? What do you think people are doing well? What do you feel like is missing? 
There are different cultural approaches to regulating AI. I do not envy the job of people crafting these regulatory frameworks. It's so hard to create this umbrella for what constitutes AI and you're trying to get the same piece of legislation to work for ChatGPT as would work for probably Zillow's Destinate. Uh, incredibly complex. I appreciate best the EU's risk-based approach. This looks more at sector and use case. I think that for these, what is considered a general purpose AI system under which these generative models fall, looking more at sectoral use uh, will not necessarily, it's not going to be an easy task, but be easier than evaluating a base model uh, and can push back on this concentration of power. I worry if we straight out ban all of these generative systems, the the institutions with more resources and capacity to evaluate, mitigate harm for these types of models will have access to and continue to develop these models as opposed to more open source and lower resource organizations building and evaluating models. Uh, so I'm excited about the EU AI Act. I've seen a little bit more come out of the UK, Canada, and the US. These are all necessarily, these are just, these are Western institutions and likely many other parts of the world are going to take inspiration, if not copy and paste good chunks of that. So I, I see this on a lot of people's minds in the policy space that how do we also make this global? Because as we've seen, as you're saying, these models are being developed and deployed everywhere. Yeah, I do hope that the copy paste isn't really a wholesale one, because I think that kind of coming back to our earlier conversation about cultural context when it comes to developing models. I think that also is really important in the development of policy. And when I think about this, it feels like there are really sets of basic presuppositions that we kind of have to think about in the crafting of that policy. And with you, I'm not jealous of the people who have to think about these questions, because I feel like it's very difficult it seems like some of the basic foundations of a culture, what it values. So for example, you know, a kind of easy comparison is the West, especially the U.S.'s prioritization of the individual as sort of the fundamental unit of harm or consideration. And that really kind of goes back all the way to, you know, the political philosophy foundations of things. But that really does manifest in how we come up with these policies when it comes to AI. What does it mean for an AI system to harm? And I think that looks very different when you look at some of China's recent experiments in algorithmic legislation. It seems like the more fundamental unit of who is being harmed and what harms should we seek to mitigate the most are at the group, at the societal level. That seems way more important to them. And so it does feel like while we seem good strides, and as you pointed out, um, these are coming especially from Western countries, I think that it's going to be very important to see how some of the structural assumptions that are made um, in those documents, I think it would be really important to see those kind of get exposed so that countries who have yet to develop robust AI ecosystems and also AI policy um, can really craft something that is more suitable for their own contexts. 
Absolutely. When we think about how to make a model work better, a lot of this is a data problem. What is the majority of content on the internet? What language? It's in English. And it's a lot of the internet is built for Latin characters, Latin alphabet. So I've been trying to figure out what is the best means of engaging with the developing world. Uh, in the past, it's been a resourcing problem. This, these kinds of AI systems weren't urgent on the plates of many developing country governments, but now it is. And I'm not sure. I've been working with more international organizations to bring people together, but there's vastly different cultural priorities for for different governments. So I'm um, going to get into the weird stuff, Daniel. What does the internet do? What does Avenue Q say the internet is for? Weird sex things, or Avenue Q says porn. Uh, mm-hmm. It's been interesting coming. I'm obviously American for my accent and uh, born and raised here, but work a lot with Europeans these days. And it's really interesting to see the different approaches to sexual content that is what people like to do with generative AI systems with anything. They uh, really, with that, what do people like to do? <laughs> That's absolutely right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But people don't want to have this conversation because it's a hard conversation. It's, it's scary. It's hard. You're, you have to be somewhat vulnerable and non-judgmental, but it's something that social media platforms have to think about and, policymakers will too. It's, it's something that I learned in policy school is the the agreed upon bipartisan terrible issue that is not sex, it is just assault and power dynamics is CSAM. Uh, but it's really, really hard to differentiate that from sexual content when you're creating a filter to take out non-consensual sexual content. Uh, because what you're outputting, for example, in images don't have an a factual representation in real life. You're not creating real people. They don't have an age. They can't consent. Uh, So how to do this safely is, I think, one of the most urgent safety questions that is really icky for many formally trained researchers to work on, especially in the U.S., which tends to be more conservative on sexual topics versus my conversations were with European researchers, treat sex as not inherently unsafe, but there's broad agreement on we can't we can't have non-consensual sexual non-consensual sexual content generations. That is one of the risks, I think, of a conservative approach to discussing these things, where it just feels like a taboo topic, because especially when the risks that you're speaking to start to come up. And I remember early when deep fakes were starting to explode Um, And I think this was a while after they became a thing, but when they became easier to use, as you said, the first things people were using them for were, you know, like declothifying applications, like taking a photo of somebody and just rendering them naked instead of having any clothes. And it's, I mean, that does speak to questions of consent. And these are really, really important for us to be thinking about. Um, And as these systems get more powerful, as we have systems like GPT-4 that are multimodal. Um, And, you know, we have systems that can just declaratively do things with images. Um, That sort of output is going to become easier and easier and easier to produce. And somebody has to be thinking about what that looks like to, to mitigate some of these things. Absolutely. And to my earlier point about how technology broadly helps and harms different groups, a lot of the people who are being victims of image-based sexual assault like deepfakes are often 
women, uh, trans people, people of color. It's, it's often not people who have a lot of power in the AI community. Yeah, I think it's, <laughs> these are a set of really difficult, but important discussions. And I think that if there's, if there's one thing somebody takes away from this episode, I hope it's that need to welcome more people into the heart of these conversations and bring those interests to the forefront. Because I think that's really one of the most important things we can be doing right now for ensuring these technologies get used in a more broadly good way. Thanks for engaging with that. I know it's really hard and I'm trying to better figure out how to bring this importance urgency to especially the policy world, which tends to skew a little bit more conservative. Of course. Yeah. I mean, I I think this is a really important set of topics too. And um, I hope that, you know, our our listeners engage with it as well and, and start to think about this a little bit. I think this is a good place to turn to a closing question. So usually the sort of form of the last question I give is about advice. And for you, Irene, I guess I'd love to hear a little bit about what advice you'd have for listeners. Many of your listeners, our listeners are, I think, pretty technical people who think more about that side of things. What should they think about when it comes to some of these questions about safety, about fairness, about ethics and AI systems? I would love to just see more communication across different groups in the overall AI community. I hope that it continues to be a community. I feel there's been a lot of division in the past, especially few years. And part of that is the physicality of the pandemic. But engage with research that is outside of your wheelhouse, especially that's not obviously in the AI world. Uh, And it doesn't necessarily have to be what is traditionally construed as intellectual. Uh, I watch a lot of TikTok. (laughs) I actually find it really helpful to better understand sociological issues in our current climate. Mm -hmm. Let's intellectualize TikTok, y'all. Not probably the the takeaway you're hoping for, but just engage in disciplines that might not be comfortable for you. I find a lot of people are really excited to talk about their work, look at conferences and fields that you haven't experienced before. I love the fact community. Read more of the papers that are popular there. Engage with the authors. Follow them on the social medias if that's your jam. Uh, Go outside of your comfort zone and also just trust your gut if you have a good gut. Don't trust it if it's a bad gut. Uh, (laughs) but, But generally trust your gut. I think that we have some really impressive people in the space who want to do the right thing and we can be better about the right thing if we really work with each other. Yeah, I think there are many, many people who are doing just absolutely phenomenal work who whose areas I know absolutely nothing about. And I think that trying to force yourself, as you said, to get, of your, get out of your comfort zone a little bit to deeply engage with that, it's, I think, valuable in and of itself, but then also really sheds different perspectives on whatever set of problems you might be thinking about or on the field as a whole. And so I've personally found that to be a really valuable activity. And I hope that um, anyone listening to this really take Irene's words to heart because that's a very important thing to do. Amazing. This is such a delightful conversation. 
I really enjoyed meeting and chatting with you. Yeah, Irene, thank you so much for doing this and for taking the time. I, I really appreciate your work. I'm excited to see what you continue to do in this space. And I hope our listeners will be watching as well. Yeah, there's some cool stuff coming out very shortly. Peer pressure me into releasing it. And that is a wrap, my friends. As I mentioned at the start of the episode, you can subscribe to The Gradient on Substack to receive not just this podcast, but also our articles and newsletters directly to your email. You can also visit us at thegradient.pub, where you'll find all of that, as well as more information about The Gradient and how you could even contribute if you're interested. And finally, if you enjoyed this episode, we would really appreciate your feedback. If you'd like to leave a comment or review, we'd love to know how we can make this series more interesting and informative to you. And with all that, I'll leave you until the next episode.